Turn to Song of Solomon chapter 8, and we'll begin in verse 8. And before we get into our text tonight, I just want to, I guess, share a personal note. I, every once in a while, this hits me kind of in waves, and I think today was one of those. But the opportunity to come Sunday after Sunday after Sunday to present the Word of God to you is just, just delightful to me. It is such a joy that, that you show up to keep listening, and we're thankful for that. But what, a, what an amazing amazing invention that the Lord gave us in the church of Jesus Christ with shepherds and sheep and we we come alongside one another you are a blessing to me and I'm so thankful for you your your attentiveness your eagerness to learn inspires me and it helps me and it's I'm thankful for that my title for this message is the proper progression of love And we will definitely see that, since Song of Solomon is about love. But we could also call tonight, the unsatisfactory ending to a love story. Because Song of Solomon ends like a novel where you get to the end and the last chapter has been ripped out of the back. And you're looking for resolution and it's not there. Now we'll see this a bit later and we'll find resolution elsewhere But we come tonight to the final words of the song of all the songs, the song of Solomon. We've seen the heightening and intensifying of love between Shulamith and Solomon, especially and even through the times of difficulty in their marriage. We've seen the rekindling of love after these times of difficulty. We've seen the trip out to the country, followed by a trip back north to Shulamith's childhood home in southern Lebanon, during which they rekindle their love at an even higher level. And last time we saw this poignant, loving moment in chapter 8, verse 5, in which the daughters of Jerusalem observed them walking home to Jerusalem and Shulamith leaning on Solomon's arm. There's There's a closeness, there's a delight. And we arrived at what is the theological high point of the book, verses 6 and 7 of chapter 8 in which Shulamith finally makes the request that she requests to be Solomon's one and only bride of love. And we saw that it's very likely that she was even asking Solomon to send away all of his queens, send away all of his concubines. Chapter chapter 8, rather, verse 6, she says, Set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm. And we said that they're literally walking arm in arm. And her request is, keep me here. Keep me next to you. Make me exclusive. She even invokes the very jealousy of God. She wants him to worship God by having her as his only beloved wife. She says, furthermore, in verse 6, For love is as strong as death. Jealousy is fierce as as the grave. It flashes or flashes of fire, the very flame of the Lord. And we saw that this refers very directly to the jealousy of God. The jealousy of God, a God who wants his bride to be pure and the only bride. And she declares that nothing will quench her love for him. That she would would remain with him for a lifetime of love. In verse 7, many waters cannot quench love, neither can floods drown it. But then she intimates and she implies here that She cannot be purchased. She can't be bought off with things. She can't be satisfied with anything less than exclusive love. She says, if a man offered for love all the wealth of his house, 
he would be utterly despised. She's basically telling him, you, who, are, who is literally the most wealthy man on planet Earth, you cannot pay enough money to keep me from asking for exclusive love. You cannot buy me off. You cannot put me aside. You cannot just give to me stuff and things. I want to be exclusive. Last time was a hard message because we had to acknowledge the historical reality that after verse 7, Solomon says nothing. There is a deafening silence when she asks for exclusive love. And this is ultimately not what Solomon would do. He would continue to take hundreds of wives, hundreds of concubines. This would even be to his own spiritual detriment because these women, these foreign women, would lead him to idol worship later in his wife, his life rather, to try to please these political marriage wives and in order to try to satiate his drive to explore what it's like to deny absolutely no pleasure to yourself. We saw that from Ecclesiastes 2, that he tried everything. But we also saw from Ecclesiastes 12 that Solomon's conclusion at the end of his life was that the only good thing to do in this life was to worship God and to fear Him. And and even in Ecclesiastes 9, we heard his note of regret. In Ecclesiastes 9, 9, long after Shulamith is out of the picture, likely by her death, that the best thing a man can do is enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that He has given you under the sun. That's where we've been. Now just to let you know this next week I'm going to preach through the entire book it is a story and I want to preach through it in one shot to kind of solidify the the story of Song of Solomon in your minds one last time and so although we'll reach the end of the book tonight we'll have one more look into this depiction of God's view of marital love and on top of that if I end tonight that leaves us at 19 messages and that number just doesn't feel right to me I don't know why 20 feels about right for Song of Solomon. But next week will be a a special evening together. But now we come to chapter 8, verse 8. And what this is, is kind of a trip down memory lane. It's a review of sorts. And we'll call this first part, at least, the proper progression of love. But again, it could be the unsatisfactory ending to a love story. I'm just going to do this in some simple story markers. So we'll act like it's a play and we'll do it in acts. So act one we'll call Shulamith's childhood. Shulamith's childhood. This is, a, this is a flashback. This is looking back. And we start from hearing her brothers. We hear from her brothers for the first time in the whole book back when Shulamith was a little girl. Verse 8. These are her brothers. We have a little sister and she has no breasts. What shall we do for our sister on the day when she is spoken for? Now, why are the brothers saying this? They're they're being very protective. Why are they saying this? Well, the strong implication here is that Shulamith's father has already died. And so the the brothers are taking the role of fatherly protection. We saw back in chapter 1 that it was her brothers making her work in the vineyards as well. In fact, making her in charge of at least one of the vineyards. And so this is flashing back to a time when they're they're looking at, at what we would think is their little sister, and saying, what are we going to do when somebody's interested in her? What are we going to do when somebody speaks up and says, I want to be with this young lady. I want to marry her. They're wondering who would marry her. They continue to wonder. Verse 9, they wonder about her character. 
If she is a wall, we will build on her a battlement of silver. But if she is a door, we will enclose her with boards of cedar. Her brothers are playing the part of father. And here is their proper view of how to protect a girl not yet ready for marriage. As she is maturing developmentally, maturing emotionally and sexually, they take a very firm stand on her behalf. And and by the way, just in case you think the brothers are super righteous, it was probably just as much to protect the family honor as it was to protect her honor. But they rightly question, they don't know her character. They don't know who she is yet. She's still a little girl. We, we, We know what kind of girl she was, they might say, but we don't know what kind of woman she'll be. You don't know that until they grow up. Her own brothers don't know if Shulam is going to guard her own heart or if they're going to have to do it for her. And I would use this as, a, as an applicational moment for all who are fathers and mothers to listen very carefully because what this tells us, verse 9 tells us, you have two choices about your daughters depending on your daughter's proclivity toward obedience or not. Choice number one, honor her own desire to guard herself and her heart. You honor her own desire to guard herself. They say, if she is a wall, if she's a wall, then they'll decorate that wall. They'll honor that wall. They'll fortify the wall with a battlement of silver. They'll they'll say, we're glad you're a wall. We're going to make it even higher. We're going to make it even stronger. And so there's a a note of, of confidence and congratulations here that they come alongside her. So choice number one, honor her desire to guard herself in her heart. Or choice number two, Guard her anyway, even if she doesn't want you to. You guard her anyway. The other choice, but if she is a door, meaning she's movable and she's open before she's ready for marriage, then what do they do? We'll enclose her with boards of cedar. They're going to board it up. And you picture these men with hammers and nails and just boarding this thing up and hammering it. And you couldn't open that with a two-ton truck. They're going to guard her. They'll do anything possible to limit her access to young men and restrict her movements as long as they can until she matures. We talk about this on occasion here. This really goes completely against the popular cultural idea of letting emotion and sentiment rule a young person's marital future, doesn't it? Yes, falling in love is wonderful. But if it's not accompanied by readiness and responsibility, then it becomes dangerous. And why is it dangerous? Because then lifelong decisions are made based on the emotion of a moment in the youthful passion of unrealistic love that's only based on feelings, based on, I I enjoy being around this person. Last time we walked through the progression of what creates true love, I think this is worth reviewing briefly. What we said was, don't light the fuse until you're ready for the dynamite to go off. And what lights the fuse in Song of Solomon? We looked at this together and we'll just do it again real quickly. I gave you a list of six things that light the fuse and it's somewhat of a progression. And it begins back in chapter one and goes through the end of chapter two. This is what lights the fuse of love. This is what gets it going. The first thing we said that lights the fuse of love is pondering the other. Pondering the other. Chapter one, verse two, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth for your love is better than wine. Your anointing oils are fragrant. Your name is oil poured out. Therefore, virgins love you. Draw me after you. Let us run The king has brought me into his chambers. It's a desire that she has. I I want to be in love with him. I want to think about him. She's pondering. The second thing that lights the fuse, we said, is 
publicly making your desire known. You're publicly making your desire known. Chapter 1, verse 4, at the end, we will exult and rejoice in you. We will extol your love more than wine. Rightly do they love you. Others know of this love. It's publicly making your desire known. How does this happen? This has been happening for 7,000 years. Who do you like? Oh, who do you like? That's been happening with young girls and young boys forever. And when you say it out loud, that begins to make it more real. The third thing that lights the fuse, proximity to the other. Proximity to the other. Verse 7 of chapter 1. She says to Solomon, tell me, you whom my soul loves, where you pasture your flock, where you make it lie down at noon. Why should I be like the one who veils herself beside the flocks of your companions? In other words, I want to be different. I want to be special. Where are you going to be this afternoon? I'm going to come hang out with you. And he says in verse 8, if you do not know, O most beautiful among women, follow in the tracks of the flock. He gives her a map. Here's where you can find me. The fourth thing we saw lights the fuse of love we would call praises of the other. Praises of the other. Now it's getting serious. Chapter 1, verse 15. Solomon says to her, Behold, you are beautiful, my love. Behold, you are beautiful. Your eyes are doves. This is just getting downright googly-eyed now at this point. And she returns the compliment. Verse 16. Behold, you are beautiful, my beloved. Truly delightful. So there's pondering the other, publicly making your desire known, proximity to the other, praises of the other. The fifth step, the fifth thing that lights this fuse, we said was progression to serious talk. The progression to serious talk. In chapter 2, verse 14, Solomon is is calling out to Shulamith. She's in her, her childhood home. And he says, Oh my dove, in the clefts of the rock, in the crannies of the cliff, let me see your face. Let me hear your voice, for your voice is sweet and your face is lovely. He's calling out to her and she's withdrawn. She's reticent. She's hesitant. And why is that? Because there's real issues to talk about. Verse 15, Catch the foxes for us, the little foxes that spoil the vineyards, for our vineyards are in blossom. They're talking about the serious things of life. How are they going to progress in their relationship and finally, the last thing, the last part of love is professed sexual desire. That's the logical outflow of pondering the other, publicly making your desire known, proximity to the other, praises of the other, progression to serious talk, this professed sexual desire. And in verse 16 of chapter 2, she says, My beloved is mine and I am his. He grazes among the lilies. Until the day breathes and the shadows flee, turn, my beloved, be like a gazelle or a young stag on cleft mountains. And we saw that that has kind of a double meaning that, yes, there's definitely a sexual overtone to this. But what she's saying is, we're not married. Turn, run, get away. We can't be around each other right now. It's too much. And what we said was that when you light the fuse with pondering the other, publicly making your desire known, proximity to the other, praises of the other, progression to serious talk, professed sexual desire, all those start with P because what do you get? Pow! You're in love. So how do you know when it's time? How do you counsel younger people? The key is chapter 1, verse 8. Solomon says, If you do not know, O most beautiful among women meaning she's ready for marriage. So what did Shulamith's brothers do to keep her from this progression until she was ready? And the implication is is that in chapter 1, verse 1, she is ready. But what did they do before that? 
Well, we get a history in chapter 1, verse 6. She's saying to her friends and, and potentially to Solomon, Do not gaze at me because I am dark, because the sun has looked upon me. My mother's sons were angry with me. You notice when she's mad at them, she doesn't call them her brothers. She says they're my mother's sons. They made me a keeper of the vineyards, but my own vineyard I have not kept. What's she saying? She's saying, I look horrible. I'm sunburned. I'm exhausted. I'm tired. They made me keeper of the vineyard, so my own vineyard, my own body, I have not kept up with. She spent so much time working that she was been, she's been blasted by the sun. What does this mean? It means no time to ponder, no opportunity to publicly make desire known, little or no proximity to the other, no opportunity for praises of the other, no progression to serious talk, and no professed sexual desire. And guess what? It worked. It worked. Listen carefully. The external enforced moral code with your children will most often, according to the book of Proverbs, become the internally believed moral code for your children. They will believe internally what you enforce upon them externally. How do we know this? What does Shulamith herself say to her younger friends? Chapter 2, verse 7. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or the does of the field, that you not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. She believes she should be protected. Chapter 3, verse 5. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or the does of the field, that you not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. And then all the way in our chapter tonight, chapter 8, verse 4. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, that you not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. She believed in protecting herself. She believed in it. And now, Shulamith is going to speak in response to the flashback of her childhood and the wondering of her brothers as to whether she would be a wall, a girl who guards her heart, or a door, a girl who does not. Act 2, we'll call Shulamith's determination. Shulamith's determination. What does she say in verse 10? I was a wall. I was a wall. She, she is saying she has protected herself. She did guard her heart. I was a wall and my breasts were like towers. Then I was in his eyes as one who finds peace. When she says my breasts were like towers, she's speaking of her body as being inaccessible, unavailable, long after the time she was physically mature. She continued to guard herself and allow herself to be guarded. All the boys around her that must have liked her. She was clearly a beautiful woman. We see this over and over again in Song of Solomon. But all the boys who must have liked her, they had to go through her moral standard. They had to go through her brothers. They had to go through a lot. It was, it was to take your life in your own hands to try to get even close to her. And if her brothers didn't beat you, she would. She says, I was a wall. Physical maturity is not the same as readiness for marriage. When she says, my breasts were like towers, she's saying, I, when I was a woman, I waited until the right time for the right man. She guarded her heart until only the right man came along in God's providence. Now, the text begins to turn. And we begin to get the flavor of the dissatisfying ending. In the second half of verse 10, then I was in his eyes as one who finds peace. First of all, who is the his of his eyes? 
the last male antecedent or referent to this pronoun, his, is in verse 8. The one who speaks for her, the one who would declare his love for her. So this must only be Solomon. By the way, a little note here. We see the protectiveness of her brothers. Unlike the queens and concubines that were thrown at Solomon for political reasons, for the brothers, there was a question as to whether the richest man on earth was good enough for their sister. That's a standard. And that's the standard that all of us ought to have. But this is a sweet phrase at first glance. I was in his eyes as one who finds peace. It's a, it's a playful pun. It's a pun on both of their names. Both Solomon and Shulamith come from the same Hebrew word, root, root word, which means peace. It can also mean fulfillment, contentment, satisfaction. In other words, she's presenting them as a perfectly paired partnership. They're, they're right for each other. They're just right. But then a cloud comes to this scene and the, the storm clouds begin to gather because there's a key detail that cannot be overlooked. This phrase is very, very specific. I was in his eyes as one who finds peace. Shulamith does not say she found peace in all its facets in Solomon. She says that in his eyes, in Solomon's opinion, I've found peace. In Solomon's opinion, this relationship is just right. In Solomon's opinion, all is well. What does this mean? It means that this isn't the whole story. This is not fully how she feels about their marriage and their love. He had found peace, but she had not. And this is very important because that helps us understand the remainder of this poem. We could go on to Acts, Act 3. We'll call Act 3 Shulamith's standoff. Shulamith's standoff. Verse 11. Solomon had a vineyard at Baal Hamon. He let out the vineyard to keepers. Each one was to bring for its fruit a thousand pieces of silver. This is her still talking. And this is an introduction. It's an illustration of what her main point is about to be. She's giving a word picture that will make her point clear. But we have to understand the illustration first. Verse 11 takes us all the way back to chapter 1, verse 6. The background to her working Solomon's vineyard as the keeper of the vineyard from the time she was most likely a little girl. Her family members were tenant farmers in one of Solomon's vineyards. Now what this means, verse 12 tells us this, that the tenant kept one-sixth of the profit of the land and the owner got five-sixths. What's she saying? She's saying that Solomon controls her family. Solomon dominates her family. He determines what happens with her family. He makes the rules. Their destiny is in his hands. That's her illustration. But now she comes to her point in verse 12. My vineyard, my very own, is before me. You, O Solomon, may have the thousand and the keepers of the fruit two hundred. Now she switches once again to the familiar metaphor of her own body as being a vineyard. And now she's saying to Solomon that her love and her body is not for sale. She can't be treated like one of his least vineyards, one of his pieces of property. She says, it's my vineyard, it's my very own. This is a sad contrast to chapter 7, verse 10, 
where she says, I am my beloved's and his desire is for me, the mutual ownership of marriage. But now she's asserting that her vineyard, her body, her love, it's hers. It belongs to her, not to them. But now if you recall Solomon's silence after verses 6 and 7, her request for exclusive love, this leads us now to something of a stalemate, a standoff. That she will not be bought or owned by him like he does his vineyard. She will not be one of hundreds and hundreds of women. Shulamith sees Solomon as in essence ruling over her. In verse 12, she acknowledges his control like he has in essence controlled her family's income for many years. So what is she saying? That yes, Solomon is in control. He holds all the cards. That she's in a vulnerable position. But there's one thing she can control. Her vineyard. Her body. Where she is. What she's doing. And the implication here is that if he won't stop dividing his love with other women, he will find her unavailable to him and rightly so. Song of Solomon is concluding on a note begging the listener to heed the call to singular, monogamous, devoted love. To one person. Now the text doesn't comment on whether this is right or not, but it certainly doesn't condemn it as wrong and she has God's standard for marriage well on her side. And so she's going to remain aloof. She's going to be not close to him. She's physically going to be in a different location from him. Which brings us to Act 4. We'll call this one Act 4, Solomon's Hope. Solomon's Hope. Now he speaks in verse 13. O you who dwell in the gardens with companions listening for your voice, let me hear it. Solomon has not responded well to Shulamith's desire for exclusive love in chapter 8, verses 6 and 7. So how will Shulamith take ownership of her own vineyard? How will she create this standoff? She is apparently spending time away from him, either in the royal gardens or the vineyards. Ecclesiastes 2 verse 4 says that Solomon planted grand majestic gardens and she's always with her friends. She's always with them. Gone are the days of chapter 8 verse 5. Who is that coming up from the wilderness leaning on her beloved? Those days are gone. It may be that she goes home frequently to southern Lebanon, to the gardens there. In any case, this is a picture of Solomon yearning to be with her, hoping for her, just wanting to hear her voice. After having this, had this trip together, this time of closeness, and she ends the trip by saying, set me as a seal on your heart. And he walks in silence. And now she's apart from him. And Solomon yearns to be with her. Let me hear your voice. Remember we've said that marriage in Song of Solomon is presented somewhat as a return to the Garden of Eden. What we have here is as if Shulamith is there in the gardens. But she's in hiding until Solomon comes to affirm his total commitment to her. That the invitation to the Garden of Eden is open, but it will only happen if he commits to an exclusive relationship with her. What is Solomon doing here in verse 13? He truly loves her. He truly yearns for her company and for her love. But we still don't see him repenting of his polygamy. We don't see him taking the courageous step of giving his love exclusively to her. 
Now, we said this last week, it would literally start wars if Solomon got rid of his wives because his wives were daughters of other kings. That would have started a war on, on multiple fronts. But if he had trusted the Lord, he might have, might have prayed and he might have said, Lord, I'm going to have one wife according to your will. According to Genesis chapter 2, I'm going to go by your will. Would you please protect my nation when every king around me brings up their army? He could have done that, but he didn't. And so what does Shulamith do? She's gracious, but she is in control. And now she's distant, and yet she's patient. And so we'll be gracious and call Act 5 Shulamith's patience. Shulamith's patience. And she says in the final words of Song of Solomon, Make haste, my beloved, and be like a gazelle or a young stag on the mountains of spices, Now, at first glance, this looks like all is well, that she's inviting him to intimate love, and she is. She even references his exploration of her own body, but but the love is shadowed, and now it's with conditions. What is the condition? It is her invitation. It's her invitation only. They are not as close as they once were. Solomon has not fully devoted himself to her, but she still loves him, and, and he still desires her. But now he only comes when she calls, when she beckons him. She's continuing to give him chances to drop what he's doing, to make haste, to come get her for love. But what is she doing? If you want me, you must get away from the other women. That's her condition. So how does Song of Solomon end? It ends on somewhat of a dissatisfied note. Yes, the the final verse is a clarion call of desire. It's positive. Shulamith issues this invitation that she's available to Solomon when she calls. But because of his lack of commitment, this is limited and it's occasional. And so we're left in a mystery. What happened to their love? Ultimately, we saw last time that Solomon just couldn't fully commit. And so from a biblical history standpoint, Shulamith fades into the background of life and she lets it happen because she will not be just one of many women. I want to just show you that they're apart, they're not together, that they've gone backwards. And I want to just take a little detour here for a moment. In one of my introductory messages to Song of Solomon, I explained what we call the chiastic structure of all of Song of Solomon. We, we walked through it. It's the idea that a beginning portion is very similar to an ending portion, and, and the, the middle parts are similar to one another, and they help interpret each other. And I showed you that it's an incredibly complex and beautiful chiastic structure. There's actually three layers to it. There's the overall structure of the entire book. Within those, about seven major sections, there are chiastic structures. And within those, every one of those has its own little chiastic structure. It's a work of genius. But it also helps us to understand and interpret different parts of the book. And I want to show you this, this mirror image. I haven't emphasized it a lot as we've gone through this because it We can get a little bogged down in in technical aspects. But we come to the end, which corresponds at a very, very high level to the beginning. And let me walk you through this just for a moment to help us interpret this. Chapter 8, verse 12. She says, my vineyard, my very own is before me. 
maybe keep a finger in chapter 1 because we're going to go back and forth a couple of times. Chapter 8, verse 12, my vineyard, my very own, is before me. This corresponds to chapter 1, verse 6. Chapter 1, verse 6, do not gaze at me because I am dark, because the sun has looked upon me. My mother's sons were angry with me. They made me keeper of the vineyard, but my own vineyard I have not kept. There it is. Her vineyard. Chapter 8, verse 13, Solomon says, O you who dwell in the gardens with companions, listening for your voice, let me hear it. What does that correspond to? Chapter 1, the end of verse 4, the companions, we will exalt and rejoice in you. We will extol your love more than wine. Rightly do they love you. And this leads us to the climactic understanding that things have gone backwards. Because chapter 8, verse 14, the very last verse, she says, Make haste, my beloved, and be like a gazelle or a young stag on the mountains of spices. They are apart. And she's saying, I wish we were together. And this corresponds to chapter 1, verse 2. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is better than wine. Your anointing oils are fragrant. Your name is oil poured out. Therefore, virgins love you. Draw me after you. Let us run. The king has brought me into his chambers. You realize she's asking for the same thing. She's not in the king's chambers. She's apart from him because he hasn't committed to her. There is a final lesson of Song of Solomon. And I will repeat this lesson next week because the final lesson takes us beyond the pages of this poem. And I'm going to end our time together on that final lesson, but I'm going to do that in a few minutes. This is the end of our knowledge of Solomon and Shulamith. Since this is all we know about them, and since we're warned by the unsatisfactory note of mystery and disappointment, there's a lesson I've been wanting to, to put in these messages, and I felt like this is the right message to do this, to get to an important lesson, an, inter- an eternal lesson. For several of the messages we've gone through, we've referenced the works of English Puritan pastor Richard Baxter. He modeled shepherding care of his people, and he modeled love for his wife. His wife, Margaret, was the love of his life. In fact, as part of next week, I'm going to tell you their love story. It's a tremendous story, the story of their marriage and life together. But one thing which was important to Baxter was the marriage Marriage had a gloriously eternal purpose to it. And that was to prepare one another for death, to prepare one another for heaven. That was a purpose for marriage. And Baxter lived this out with his beloved Margaret. She died at the age of 45 after just 19 years of marriage. And so to help console his grief, Richard Baxter poured himself into writing and preaching. And this is the time of his life after the death of his wife that he wrote his treatise on marriage. And you can tell it's written by somebody who has been through it. And in his work on marriage, he gives wise and godly counsel about marriage as a a mechanism, as a place for preparation for eternity. Solomon and Shulamith couldn't do this for one another because the commitment was one-sided. And so in a very real sense, they were stuck in this world. They were stuck here. But in marriage, we're to go beyond thinking about only this, this world. And so I've adapted some of Baxter's directions and his counsel, particularly concerning eternal things. 
And I've done this into a short list of four exhortations for marriage. And these all have to do with eternity. Four exhortations for marriage. The first one, do not let conflict shadow the eternal. Do not let conflict shadow the eternal. Baxter reminds us that fighting and dissension makes you unable to discuss heavenly things together. You're unable to pray together and you're certainly unable to be a counselor and a helper to one another's souls. Let me put it this way. How can you encourage your spouse to look beyond this life to heaven when you've just become sinfully angry about something trivial? How can you do that? Look to heaven, but pick up your socks first. That doesn't make any sense. How can you tenderly pray for the other when you've been cultivating sinful, angry thoughts of the other one all day long? How can you encourage the other to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength when you're in the habit of worshiping at the idol named perfect spouse? Unchecked and unbridled conflict is an invitation to have a third spouse named Satan live in your home. It destroys any sense of the eternal between you. Can I say this? Don't wait for a terminal diagnosis to suddenly be concerned with the eternal with each other. And certainly, don't wait for an instant death of a spouse to have regrets that the last thing we did together was the conflict. Baxter says this, Have an eye to the future. And remember that you must live together until death and must be the companions of each other's lives and the comforts of each other's lives. And then you will see how absurd it is for you to disagree and upset each other. Do not let conflict shadow the eternal. I'd give a second exhortation. Love with eternal mindedness. Love with eternal mindedness. Baxter speaks to the spouse who is married to an unbeliever. But the eternal mindedness is a lesson for all of us. And I want to read a long quote because it's, it's stellar. He says this. Do you believe that you have immortal souls and an endless life of joy or misery to live? then you must know that your great concern in business is to care for those souls and for the endless life. Therefore, if your love does not help one another in this which is your main concern, it is of little worth, of little use. Everything in this world is as valuable as it is useful. A useless or unprofitable love is a worthless love. It is a trifling or a childish or a beastly love which helps you but in trifling, childish or beastly things. Do you love her, your wife and yet will leave her in the power of Satan? Or will you not help to save her soul? What? You say you love her and yet let her go to hell? And rather let her be damned than you will be at the pains to endeavor for her salvation? Never say you love her if you will not labor for her salvation. What a tender heart for the eternal soul of your spouse. I'd give a third exhortation. Don't waste your marriage on the trivial. Don't waste your marriage on the trivial. Baxter encourages the Christian couple to take every opportunity to speak seriously to one another about what he calls the matters of God. The matters of God. He says this, Discuss the things of this world no more than required. Then talk together of the state and duty of your souls toward God and of your hopes for heaven. 
In other words, spending two hours talking about your life insurance coverage and five minutes talking about what the Lord is teaching you is worthless. Get the business out of the way and talk about real things. And in fact, he cautions about how to listen. He cautions about when the other is, he says, quote, speaking seriously about holy things, let the other be careful to cherish and not to extinguish the conversation. You as spouses ought to be able to say, I'd like to sit and talk about heaven. I'd like to talk to you about my, my concerns for eternity. I'd like to talk to you about the end of life. That's, when you, that, that's not the time to go, oh, look at the time. I Look, I got a tea time in 20 minutes. Can we do this some other time? Instead of just being entertained together, instead of boasting about the fact that you have outdone all of Netflix and Amazon Prime, listen to sermons together. Read the word together. Talk about heaven together. Baxter exhorts all of us. He says, quote, Join together in frequent and fervent prayer. Prayer forces the mind into sobriety and moves the heart with the presence and majesty of God. Pray also for the other when you are in secret that God may do that work which you most desire upon each other's hearts. And I'd give one more exhortation from our friend Richard Baxter. Prepare each other for eternity. Prepare each other for eternity. He says this, It is a great duty of husbands and wives to help comfort one another in preparing for a safe and happy death. And when death is at hand, Oh, then what abundance of tenderness and seriousness and skill and diligence is needful for one that hath the last office of love to perform to the departing soul of so near a friend. Oh, then what need will there be of your most wise and faithful and diligent help? Now you might be thinking, how can I do that? I don't really think about heaven all that much myself. Then start. He goes on to say this, that if you're not eternally minded, you're, you're useless. He says, quote, They that are utterly unprepared and unfit to die themselves can do little to prepare or help another. But they that live together as the heirs of heaven and converse on earth as fellow travelers to the land of promise may help and encourage the souls of one another and joyfully part at death as expecting quickly to meet again in eternal life. Doesn't that make arguments over who burned dinner or what time you're supposed to be somewhere seem silly? Because in most cases, one of you will prepare the other. One of you will hold the other's hand as the first one goes home. So do that now. So given the uh, unsatisfying ending to Song of Solomon, I didn't want it to be that. As I was studying, I thought, this is a terrible ending. But this is the ending that God ordained. The mystery of wondering how this turned out. What's the final lesson of Song of Solomon? Here it is. The final lesson of Song of Solomon is that we live in a sinful world And marital love must wade through the reality of sin. We live in a sinful world and marital love must wade through the reality of sin. As a matter of fact, one theologian calls this final section of Song of Solomon a battle between domination and desire. 
that Solomon can dominate Shulamith. We saw that. And Shulamith pushes back with boundaries. There's this tension between them now as a result of what? As a result of sin. And the end of Song of Solomon affirms and establishes that because of sin, domination and desire for marriage, for control enters into the marriage. Where do we first hear this battle of domination and desire? Where do we hear this? It goes all the way back. This is connected directly to the curse of God given in Genesis 3.16 to the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall dominate you. He shall rule over you. In other words, Song of Solomon proves that the curse of sin has entered even into marriage. There's a struggle in marriage. A wife being contrary to her husband and a husband trying to dominate sinfully. That's been the battle for 7,000 years. And so what does Song of Solomon leave us with? Literally the greatest love story between a man and a woman ever written. It's called the song of all the songs. Solomon wrote 1,005 songs and the Bible says this is his best one. It's inspired. An example of passionate marital love, joyful marital love, intimate marital love, delightful marital love, delicious marital love. It's, it's beyond our comprehension of how delightful marriage is designed to be. But in the end, sin must still be confronted and we can't do it on our own. Because Jeremiah 17.9 says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? In other words, Song of Solomon ends on this dissatisfying note that tells us that human love is not enough. It's not enough. Our sin has tainted and smeared true love. It leaves us looking for Song of Solomon chapter 9. But in the context of all the Bible, what does Song of Solomon leave us looking for? It leaves us looking for a Savior. And Solomon's lineage is traced all the way to the birth of Jesus Christ, the Savior, in Matthew 1. Right after Song of Solomon ends on a note of needing salvation from sin, needing a Savior, just by turning the page, we see God's offer. First of all, Isaiah chapter 1, verse 2, there's the problem of sin. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. That's the problem. And in the same chapter, we get the solution. Chapter 1, verse 18 of Isaiah. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. What's the ultimate point, the ultimate lesson of Song of Solomon? Make human marriage all you can, but it will be tainted by sin, and you need a Savior. You need a Savior. I will continue to maintain that Song of Solomon is not the story of Christ and the church. Song of Solomon is not the story of God and Israel. It is the true love story of Solomon and Shulamith, who despite the most romantic love ever recorded in human history, still needed a savior. Song of Solomon is not the story of Christ. It is, however, a story which proves our need for Christ. I hope you've seen that and I hope it is a benefit to you spiritually. Let's pray together. 
Our Father, we come to you now in awe of the mystery of, from a human standpoint, what is a dissatisfying ending. We want to see Solomon and Shulamith ride off into the sunset together, proving that human love conquers all. But human love cannot conquer sin. Only divine love can conquer sin. Only the love of a perfect God who became a man to save us from our own sinful ways. And while we pray for the marriages in our church and we we long, Lord, to see them rise to the level and the standard of the love that's portrayed in Song of Solomon, this cherishing of one another, ultimately we hit the wall of our own depravity and we must sink to our knees and ask for your help. For those who are unsaved, to ask for your forgiveness. For those who are saved, to ask for your sanctification. That while we enjoy the delights of love in our marriage, we also see the friction and the sparks of sin. And so our prayer, Lord, is that while our marriages enjoy the delights that you invented, that we also are sanctified and humbled by the fact that we are mirrors into one another's sin natures every single day. Let the love stories represented in this church not end on a note of stalemate, but let us be those that prepare one another for eternity, that, that don't waste time on, the, on trivial things, that love one another intensely and deeply and sacrificially, that cherish one another as God has cherished His people and that we continually present our sin before you in humble repentance and humble confession, that we are quick to forgive, that we are slow to speak and slow to anger, that we are those that would make our marriages truly reflective of redemption. Let this book have its effect, Lord. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.